Welcome to Blood, Bodies, and Bones, a podcast about true crimes, murder mysteries, hauntings, urban legends, and more. I'm your host, Jay. On today's episode, I want to share with you the story of a wholesome Midwest farming family who were well known for their generosity and kindness in their small community, and the tragedy that would occur, terrifying the residents of Holcomb, Kansas. This is Blood, Bodies, and Bones, The Clutter Family. In 1959, Holcomb was a quiet, small town with wheat plains, farms, and ranches located in Finney County, Kansas. It was a town where you could go to the grocery store and there would not be a stranger in sight. Everyone knew each other. The residents of the town were so close-knit that even the local post office left their doors unlocked. In fact, so did most of the residents. Herbert William Clutter was a hard-working father and a faithful husband who provided well for his family. Having graduated from Kansas State University with a degree in agriculture, Herb was a 48-year-old self-made man who owned and operated River Valley Farms, a more than 640-acre farm located in Holcomb. Herb was known and well-liked in his community. He was a generous employer to those who assisted him with his day-to-day operations, and even had such a sterling reputation that he was often referred to as the salt of the earth by many. Herb's niece, Diana Edwards, talked about how he always provided a sense of safety and comfort when he was present. His wife, Bonnie May, had studied to become a nurse when she was younger. Bonnie's dream was never realized, though, as she had to stop her education due to an appendectomy, which in those days took some time to recover from. The 45-year-old mother of four loved to be outdoors, teaching her children about God's creations. She was always engaged with the family. Bonnie and Herb loved to entertain in the home they built. The Clutters would have 4-H gatherings and co-op parties in their home, with Bonnie being the perfect hostess. The two eldest Clutter children were Ivana, who was 23 years old and married, living in Nebraska, and 21-year-old Beverly, who was studying to be a nurse. Both women had already moved out of the family home. Ivana and Beverly were described as being active in their community and were even considered as leaders in the town by some. Of the two youngest Clutter children, 16-year-old Nancy was the outgoing one. She was involved in her community, was her class president, a musician, an excellent student, and was also known for her beauty. Their only son, 15-year-old Kenyon, was reserved and shy. He was described as being highly intelligent, preferring to build and modify electronics, although Kenyon didn't have very many friends. In March 1958, Richard Hickok was sentenced to five years at the state penitentiary in Lansing, Kansas, for burglary of a home in which a rifle was taken. Hickok was born and raised on a small farm in Kansas by religious parents. With an above-average intelligence, he was a very good athlete who dreamt of a football scholarship. However, early disciplinary issues, combined with being an underachieving student, would crush that dream, and Richard would see his chance at a football scholarship slip through his fingers. While serving time at the penitentiary, he would end up sharing a cell with Perry Smith and another prisoner by the name of Floyd Wells. Like Hickok, Floyd Wells was serving three to five years for burglary. According to a publication titled Federal Probation Volume 68, Number 1, which was published by the Administrative Office of the United States Courts, Wells often talked with Hickok. Their conversations were a blend of fact and fiction although there was one notable exception. Wells would discuss at length his legitimate employment with Herb Clutter. 
he would tell Hickok about a safe that was kept inside of the clutter home, a safe that would always have large amounts of cash inside, from which clutter would pay his employees. Perry Smith was born to parents who were part of the rodeo circuit. His parents were both alcoholics, and as a child, Smith endured physical and emotional abuse. In 1948, Smith joined the Army, serving in the Korean War, and was honorably discharged in 1952. That same year, he was involved in a motorcycle accident that required hospitalization for half a year. Things would only worsen for Smith, as surgery on his legs would leave him with chronic pain and a self-diagnosed aspirin addiction. He would be charged with reckless driving and resisting arrest in 1952. However, both charges were later dropped. Then, in July of 1955, Smith was arrested for burglary, but escaped Phillip County, Kansas jail just three days later and disappeared. In Worcester, Massachusetts, he was cited for vagrancy in 1955, but then was released on $10 bail, and again he vanished. However, in 1956, his luck ran out. Smith was identified as an escapee in March of 1956 and was sentenced to 5-10 to ten years in the state penitentiary at Lansing. Smith and Hickok would come to the realization that they would work well together on the outside. In 1959, Smith was granted parole and told that part of that parole was that he was to leave the state of Kansas and not return, otherwise he would be in violation. Hickok would be granted parole only a month later and stayed with his parents while obtaining a job as an auto mechanic in Olathe, Kansas. Hickok's former cellmate, Floyd Wells, would advise investigators that Hickok informed him that he arranged for some kind of job in Kansas City to get parole, and that he would have to make some kind of pretense of working there for some time. Hickok wrote to Smith several times before finally reaching him, requesting that the two meet up. Ignoring the conditions of his parole, Smith finally agreed to meet up in Olathe, Kansas, Hickok would outline his plan to acquire Herb Clutter's money to Smith. The two former cellmates then drove 400 miles from Olathe to Garden City, Kansas. From there, it was just a short drive to the Clutter property in Holcomb. After traveling down the long tree-lined dirt driveway of the property, under the cover of darkness, the pair entered the home with a knife and shotgun. The two men first searched the office and did not find the safe that Wells had advised would be there. So, they decided to expand their search further into the home. They went through the clutter residence, walking into each room and searching with the flashlight as they went. After being woken up by the flashlight shining in his eyes, Herb was taken at gunpoint to his office. He repeatedly told the intruders that there is no safe, and even offered to write them a check and give them approximately $30 that he had in his wallet. This was not acceptable by Smith and Hickok, and over the next two hours, the house was searched, and the remaining Clutter family members were woken up. When the two intruders realized that there was no safe to be found, they decided to separate Herb and Kenyon from Bonnie and Nancy. The father and son were brought to the basement, and Herb was told to lie down on the cement floor, while Kenyon was brought to a separate room and placed on the couch lying face up with a pillow under his head. Both father and son were hogtied. Nancy was tied to the bedpost of her second-floor bedroom, while Bonnie was also tied up. Both mother and daughter had their mouths taped shut. It is at this point that Smith and Hickok decided that more must be done. After finishing restraining Bonnie and Nancy, Smith returned to the basement and goaded Hickok to use the knife on Herb. Unable to do so, Smith took the knife from Hickok and proceeded to slit Herb's throat, after which he then took a shotgun and, at close range, shot Herb in the head. 
The pair then turned their attention to the rest of the Clutter family, murdering them one by one with a gunshot to the head. The knife was only ever used on Herb. Leaving with a pair of binoculars, a transistor radio, and roughly $30 in cash, both Hickok and Smith fled the scene. Susan Kidwell and Nancy Ewalt, two friends of Nancy Clutter, along with Clarence Ewalt, Nancy's father, arrived at the Clutter residence early that Sunday morning to take Nancy to church. The teenage girls rang the doorbell. However, no one answered. The girls decided to go to a neighbor's house and telephoned the Clutters. But yet again, there was no answer. The girls, along with Clarence, drove back to the Clutter residence to try one more time. As there was still no answer, the girls decided to try the door in hopes that it was unlocked. As the pair entered the unlocked home and walked past the kitchen, they noticed that there were no dishes left out. What was even more odd was that Nancy's open purse was lying on the kitchen floor near the back door. Concerned, the girls proceeded up the staircase to the second level. Susan was the first one to enter Nancy's room. Nancy Ewalt recalls hearing Susan scream and seeing her run past her and out of the home. Nancy Ewalt then entered Nancy Clutter's room, saw her lying in her bed, and went over to wake her. Nancy Ewalt then noticed the blood splatters on the 16-year-old's walls and immediately knew why Susan left screaming. After hearing the screams and being told what was discovered, Clarence recalled immediately going to the phone to contact an ambulance. However, when he got to the phone, the receiver was off the base and the phone line had been cut. He immediately got in his vehicle with his daughter and her friend and drove to a phone to contact the police. With Garden City, Kansas being approximately 15 minutes away from Holcomb, the Garden City Police Chief, Mitchell Geisler, was one of the first authorities to arrive on the scene, along with Assistant Chief Rich Rodler. According to the Garden City, Kansas Police Department, when they arrived at the horrific murder scene, Herb was found in his pajamas, lying on a mattress in the basement with his hands bound and his mouth taped. Not only was his throat slashed, but he had been stabbed and there was a gunshot wound to his head. A partial boot print and blood was found near Herb. Both Bonnie and her daughter were found upstairs in separate bedrooms, each with a gunshot wound to their head. Bonnie had been bound and gagged, while Nancy was only bound. Kenyon was found on a couch in an adjoining room to where his father was also found in the basement. The 15-year-old was bound, gagged, and shot in the head. Assistant Chief Rolliter, who was also an expert photographer, photographed the crime scene. When the photographs from the basement were developed, a boot print was found in the dust that was not noticeable to the naked eye when the crime scene was being looked at. This print was near the one in blood found next to Herb, and would become key evidence in catching the murderers. The print would later be matched to boots worn by Perry Smith. Local police immediately knew that they were going to need assistance with this case, as it was like nothing they had experienced before. So they contacted the Kansas Bureau of Investigation. Al Dewey of the KBI would take the lead in trying to find out who committed these horrific murders. He was assisted by Harold Nye, Roy Church, and Clarence Dunce. Dewey requested the support of four additional government agencies to assist him in developing leads and evidence in the case. In the 2017 documentary, Cold-Blooded, detectives described that at the time, this type of crime was unheard of in a small community like Holcomb. They said that due to the extreme violence displayed in the Clutter residence, they felt this had to be committed by someone close to or known by the Clutters. One such suspect was Bobby Rupp, the boyfriend of Nancy Clutter. 
Rupp was the last known individual to be at the Clutter residence just hours before the murders. He had spent the evening there at their home and left shortly after 10 p.m. In the documentary, Rupp discussed how he understood that detectives needed to do their job and cooperated with them as necessary. Rupp would later be cleared as a suspect. He talked about how he and Nancy knew each other from the first grade onward and how pleasant and pretty she was to him. The couple were supposed to go to a midnight movie on Saturday, November 14th, but Herb suggested that they go on Friday night instead. Rupp said how different things would have been if he went to the movies with Nancy on Saturday, as she wouldn't have been there when the murders occurred. Twelve hours after the Clutters were murdered, Herb's 16-year-old niece, Diana Edwards, recalled that she had only been home for a few minutes when a 12-year-old neighbor brought over a note that was left for her and her family. Diana noticed that the note was from the police, and, as such, she decided to read it. She described that the note simply stated, Clutter family murdered in Holcomb, and that the only additional detail on the note was a phone number to contact the police. She remembers how scared she felt after reading the note, saying that it felt as if there was no solid ground underneath her. Diana's parents were out on their fishing boat at the time, so Diana decided to contact the telephone number listed on the note. When answered, the police confirmed that the message on the note was in fact real. Four members of the Clutter family were found dead in their home that morning, but no further details were available. Diana said she was worried about how she could tell her mother that her uncle Herb, her mother's brother and protector, was dead. On November 18, 1959, just four days after the brutal murders, a funeral was held for the family, with more than 1,000 mourners in attendance at the First Methodist Church in Garden City, Kansas. Diana recorded her thoughts from the funeral that day. She remembers thinking that, quote, it didn't matter how they had always been so good, that they always went to church and how her family almost never went. They were all together now. She was able to walk out in the pale November sunshine, but they couldn't. They were better than she was, and that they were dead and she was still alive. Most individuals who were present at the funeral were also at the burial at Valley View Cemetery, including the investigators. Ivana and Beverly, along with other relatives, were able to say their final goodbye to Herb, Bonnie, Nancy, and Kenyon. Within days after the funeral, Beverly, who was engaged at the time, decided to move her wedding up and bring a bit of happiness in such a dark time while her relatives were still in town. In the documentary Cold-Blooded, Herb and Bonnie's granddaughter, whose name was not given, spoke of how authorities asked Beverly to change her name before she wed, as they were unsure if there was a vendetta against the family. Beverly agreed. Diana recalled that during the wedding and reception, the two surviving daughters stepped in as host for their parents. They made sure that everyone felt comfortable, visited with each aunt and uncle and grandparents, cousins, family friends, and church members in attendance. The courage and strength that these two women would have needed to have, not only to keep their composure and not break down, but also to make sure that all the family and friends were looked after and felt comfortable after losing their parents and siblings, it's just unimaginable and extraordinary for someone of such a young age. After leaving Holcomb for Kansas City, Hickok and Smith stayed afloat by using bad checks. After no longer being able to survive on the bad checks, the pair decided to flee to Mexico and stay hidden for a short time. While there, they pawned the stolen binoculars and transistor radio. The pair were able to survive for a while. 
However, when the money started to dry up, they decided to come back to the United States with what was left. They hitchhiked through California to Omaha, Nebraska, and after a brief stay in Omaha, the two men stole a car and traveled back to Kansas City. From Kansas City, they then traveled to Florida and finally ended up in Nevada. While Smith and Hickok were on the run, Dewey and the KBI had time to investigate the murders further and would finally get a break in the case. In the Hutchinson News, a Kansas newspaper, a reward for $1,000 was offered for any information about the murder. After hearing of the murders on the radio and learning of the reward, Floyd Wells, Hickok's former cellmate, who was still serving time at Lansing, decided to speak to authorities about what he knew. Agent Wayne Owens was sent to interview a prisoner who supposedly had important information regarding the murders of Herb and Bonnie Clutter. On December 10, 1959, Wells was interviewed about what he knew. He spoke of his time working for the Clutter family and how he told Hickok of this. Wells went on to describe that he told Hickok of one particular day that he was working at River Valley Farms, and he saw Herb take $10,000 from a safe to pay a bill. In the Federal Probation publication, it was noted that this story of Wells was so compelling that Hickok told Wells, as soon as I get out on parole, I'm going to find me some transportation, get a hold of Smith, and go to the clutters and see if there still is $10,000 in their damn safe. Wells described Hickok as relentless in questioning him about the Clutter family. How old were the children? What was the layout of the home? He then recounted how Hickok repeatedly said that he would kill the family and leave no witnesses. Wells said that he never believed what Hickok said and considered it to just be prison talk to pass the time. Later, Wells would be killed during a prison break in Mississippi. I couldn't find anything connecting Wells' killing back to Hickok or Smith, although it does seem rather suspicious at the very least, almost as if karma was paying Wells what he was owed by snitching on Hickok and Smith. On December 31, 1959, both Hickok and Smith were arrested in Las Vegas, Nevada, Upon receiving word of their capture due to an all-point bulletin being sent out with the pair's mugshots, Dewey and the other KBI investigators flew to Nevada, hoping to obtain confessions from the two individuals. Both Smith and Hickok were flown back to Garden City, Kansas, where they were tried for the murders of the Clutter family in Finney County District. The jury, all of which were men, returned with a guilty verdict, and both Smith and Hickok were charged with four counts of first-degree murder, with a recommendation for the death penalty. Death row of the federal prison in Leavenworth, Kansas, would be home for Smith and Hickok for the next five years. Both Smith and Hickok would be successful in appealing their rulings time after time, further delaying their executions. It was during this time that author Truman Capote took particular interest in the murders. Capote was determined that he would write his first non-fictional novel based on this case. Although he wasn't a trained journalist, Capote knew what needed to be done. Traveling to Kansas with Harper Lee, a friend and fellow author, the pair would interview investigators, taking thousands of pages of notes. Capote started to cultivate relationships with people who were connected to or knew about the case, including Al Dewey. In the documentary Cold-Blooded, several individuals who were connected to this case in one form or another were interviewed. Capote's biographer, Gerald Clark, said that Truman knew he had something different with this story and that he needed to end the book with the deaths of Smith and Hickok. Al Dewey's son, Paul, was also interviewed in the documentary, and recalled how Capote developed a relationship with his father and mother, writing to them and requesting information about the case. 
Paul mentioned that numerous questions from the KBI came up about whether his father was providing Capote with special access to records and information about the case. When Capote spoke of the book that he was writing, he described it as, quote, This new adventure, this experiment, is what I call the non-fiction novel. Both Smith and Hickok would correspond with Capote on a weekly basis from death row for over a year. A short clip from a film titled, With Love from Truman, was included in the documentary and showed Capote being asked if it was hard to get to know Hickok and Smith. He replied by saying, quote, Richard was easy to get along with and easy to know because he was like somebody you would meet on a train that would just start up an instant conversation while he'd tell you everything that ever happened to him. But Perry was a strange and difficult boy. But of the two, I certainly got in the end what I considered closer to him because he was so difficult to get close to. But we became very intimate, an intense sort of friendship. Capote's biographer described that there were similarities between Truman and Perry Smith. Truman also had a bad childhood, although not as severe as Smith's. He talks about how Capote's problem was a lack of love, but that he saw in Smith a sort of image of himself, as he might have been, and that Smith also saw in Capote the image of a man he might have become. When describing Smith, Capote said Smith was, quote, what people would have called a bad character, but he was ever so much more than that. If Perry could have just been left there to draw and paint, he would have developed into quite a different person. Capote talked about how he would visit Hickok and Smith every three months while they were on death row. Just before his execution, Smith looked up what happens when you hang someone in a medical dictionary and wrote a letter to Capote detailing this in great length. Before their execution, Smith and Hickok ate their final meals in separate rooms. Both men were executed on April 14, 1965, by hanging on the gallows on the prison grounds. Hickok died at 12.41 a.m. and Smith at 1.19 a.m. A psychiatrist who was at the executions of Smith and Hickok talked about how Capote was standing next to him at the time, crying and visibly upset when Smith was executed. Harper Lee's biographer said that Capote felt that he had to be at the execution. It was the last chapter of his book and he had to see how his friend died. When Hickok was asked if he had any last words, his response was very different from Smith's. He initially said, I guess not. However, he did motion for Agent Roy Church of the KBI, an agent who played a large role in the arrest of the two men. Hickok said to Agent Church, You're sending me to a better place than this. Goodbye. However, when it came to Smith, he was more arrogant in what he had to say. According to the Garden City Police, before his execution on April 14, 1965, Smith's last words were, Quote, I think it's a hell of a thing that a life has to be taken in this manner. I say this especially because there's a great deal I could have offered society. I certainly think capital punishment is legally and morally wrong. Any apology for what I have done would be meaningless at this time. I don't have any animosities toward anyone involved in this matter. I think that is all. I think with a statement like that, Smith clearly did have a concern over loss of life, but only when it came to his own. Sure, it may have been possible that he had more to offer society, but that is something that will be forever unknown. What is certain, though, is Smith's apparent lack of remorse and inability to accept any responsibility for his part in the brutal murders. His difficult home life, the Korean War, and troubles he faced, both self-inflicted and not, may have contributed to the lack of concern for others, but it certainly doesn't by any means excuse what he did. The two were initially buried on the prison grounds, with the state paying for both burials. Smith's burial would cost $250 less than Hickok's, 
as Smith was entitled to a $250 veteran's burial allowance, being an honorably discharged Korean War veteran. Their bodies would be later moved to Mount Muncie Cemetery in Leavenworth County. After the murders, residents in the small community felt like they were robbed of a presumed safety. They were able to leave their doors unlocked, with neighbors being able to knock and just walk in. No one worried. Things were now significantly different. Now everyone locked their doors. Although the two sisters could start to put the gruesome and tragic murders to rest, now that the killers had been caught and were executed, it wouldn't be long before they, and the residents of Holcomb, would be made to relive the painful and horrific events that occurred that night. Capote's book, In Cold Blood, was released in 1966, and was praised by some as a masterpiece and powerful reporting. This book would not only make Capote more money, but would raise him to a prominence the likes of which he had not seen before. Although his book would become a bestseller, and be known as the start of the true crime genre, some locals in Holcomb, including the surviving daughters and relatives of Herb and Bonnie Clutter, would not be pleased with what he wrote, the attention it brought to their town, and how it exploited the victims. Capote would do a book signing at the local library in Garden City, Kansas, and would receive a warm welcome by those in attendance. In an on-camera interview included in the documentary Cold-Blooded, Al and Marie Dewey would speak of Capote and his best-selling novel. Al talked about how the book was very accurate and well-written. His wife Marie said that, quote, The book was marvelous and I loved it. I feel that the town, as a whole, appreciates all that Truman has done. There are very few who are not happy about it, but I think, probably, they resent the fact that, say, an outsider came to publicize the murder. But what they don't stop and realize is that whenever there is a catastrophe, there is publicity. We are fortunate to have someone like Truman do it for us. In the documentary, one of the granddaughters mentions that the family had no desire to speak out until now, as they did not want to sensationalize the murders more than they already were. She talks about how there were 45 inaccuracies in Capote's novel, with the most upsetting being how Capote used Bonnie's surgery to depict her as a very sick woman who stayed in bed all day and had little energy. This particular depiction of Bonnie would hurt the family and result in them feeling burned by Capote. Bonnie's niece, Diana Edwards, talked about how, quote, Bonnie was always reliable and did things in the community. She knew how to keep house, how to cook and can, all the stuff that you were supposed to know. She knew how to be a gracious woman. Diana went on to mention that, quote, The clutters became cardboard figures, hardly more than a backdrop for Capote's sympathetic depiction of the killers. They weren't real to Capote. Capote's book would be turned into a movie just a year later. Not only did the movie shoot on the clutter property, but also in the clutter house itself. Some of the actors in the movie describe their experience on set as claustrophobic, as they filmed in the house for a week with the windows blackened out. One of the actors said that after he watched the final cut of the movie, he was physically sick. The movie, like the book, was praised by critics and even won four Oscar awards. Some of the jurors at the original trial of Smith and Hickok actually appeared and played jurors in the movie itself. In Cold Blood would be Capote's final novel. He would later suffer from drug addiction, passing away on August 25, 1984. In the documentary Cold-Blooded, Herb and Bonnie's granddaughter wonders if there will ever be a day when the story of her family's murder will go away. She stated that she is left with a reminder from her mother and aunt that, quote, it is about joy and remembering the family, that this is the part that is often lost sometimes in these stories. Although there were different memorials for the Clutter family, 
one located at the co-op and another located at the Methodist church, there was nothing in the town of Holcomb. In the documentary, Bobby Rupp was talking about how the Clutter family made quite an impact on his life. So, he decided to go to Holcomb City Council, requesting that a memorial be built. The city agreed, and a memorial with a plaque remembering the Clutter family was built. In the documentary, Bobby stated that as long as he is able to take care of the memorial, he will, and that they have agreed that when he is gone, they will see to it that the memorial is taken care of. Today, the home where the gruesome and brutal murders took place is still standing, outliving Richard Hickok, Perry Smith, and Truman Capote. The home has had many owners over the years, one of whom noticed how many curious visitors would come by the home just for a peek and decided to start charging admission. For now, the home is again occupied, and hopefully the owners have been able to make happy memories in a place where such a tragedy and horror occurred. What surprised or shocked you about this episode? Share your thoughts with us by heading over to our Instagram page, Blood Bodies and Bones Podcast, or you can find us on Facebook at Blood Bodies and Bones Podcast. The links are listed in the episode description below. If you like this episode, why not subscribe to Blood Bodies and Bones so you can be notified when a new episode is available. Our first episode, The Villisca Axe Murders, is available for you to listen to right now. Thank you for joining me and letting me share this story with you. I really hope you enjoyed it. I will be back on December 1st with a brand new episode. Until then, remember to keep your doors locked, your curtains closed, and maybe leave a light on when you go to sleep tonight. <laughs>